0: Welcome to the November 6th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, and the sermon is entitled, Testing God's Patience, delivered today by Associate Pastor Clyde Moyer, Jr. want to laugh at myself a little bit. I have a good friend that's a pastor down in Hat Creek. If you've never been to Hat Creek, you ought to go there. Uh, it's one of those places that you could have welcome to Hat Creek on one side and see you later on the other. Steve Haley is a pastor of a church down there and he put on Facebook this morning and I thought, isn't that just like that he would do that because today's the day I preach. And this little saying said, when God put a calling on your life, he already factored in the stupidity. Most comforting thing I ever heard. That's a comforting thing to know is God knows who we are before he calls us and he takes advantage of that. And he reaches down and he guides us step by step. This morning I want to talk about testing God's patience. I've got a lot of experience at that. Uh, we don't want to do it. Genesis 6-3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be hundred and twenty years. This morning, using this focal verse as a springboard, I hope to remind us that God is is holy and holiness demands that sin be dealt with. Our society today sweeps it under the rug and it pretends like it doesn't really exist that that's an old fashioned thing, but sin is the same as it's always been. Sin will always have to be paid for by someone. If God has been speaking to us, it's very wise not to postpone the decision. To unpack this just a bit, I want to show God's consistency throughout the ages in that sin always had to be paid for. I'm going to walk us through three different stories showing God's faithfulness in reaching out to man, man's decision to keep rejecting him, and finally, the price that they had to pay. The first story will do deal with the flood. God created a perfect world and then he crowned his creation with man and woman. Adam and Eve were created in God's image in complete perfection, but even being placed in a perfect environment man fell from grace and sin was introduced into the world. Adam's sin called original sin began a landslide of sin that saw society Deteriorate to a point that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5, 6, and 7, God said, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And in the passage of time, a man named Enoch comes into the picture. We don't know a great deal about Enoch's early life. We don't know if he was a godly man or an evil man. But at 65 years old, his first son was born, and they named him Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. He walked so closely with God that Enoch, when Enoch was 365 years old, uh, the Bible says that God rewarded him by taking him to heaven, to reward him by not making him go through death. He was translated from earth and taken immediately into God's presence in heaven. He was the first person raptured if you will. Just as a side point, this is a very early picture of the rapture that will come before the great tribulation. In this case, God raptures Enoch out of danger before the flood. In the end times, God will rapture us, his bride, the church, out of danger before the great tribulation. Methuselah is best known for the fact that he lived 969 years which is longer than any other man in recorded history. But what is less known is the meaning of his name. Dr. J. Vernon McGee says it should be interpreted, when he dies, it will come. Well, what will come? The flood. Methuselah's name was a prophetic utterance about the flood that was coming. Mankind had stepped across the line with God, had tested his patience too far, So he declared judgment on them. The flood would come, and the flood would destroy everything. But even after God pronounced judgment on mankind, he provided a way for men to still come to him if they would. God called a man named Noah to build an ark. Touched on that a little bit in my Sunday school class this morning, but Noah is called to build an ark after warning people of the flood coming to a people that had never seen rain. No, no thunderstorms, no rain, the mist came up from the ground every morning, and when it settled back down, it was enough to water all the plants. So he's explaining that something's going to happen they've never seen, never heard of before, and oh, by the way, I'm going to build a boat to get us out of it. What was a boat, for that matter? It took him 120 years to complete that ark. These are the same 120 years that are spoken of back in our focal verse. Genesis 6.3 where it says he will only strive with man a certain amount of time. And a man's number will be 120 days. That doesn't mean that he's saying that people are going to live to be 120 years from now. And what he's saying is they got 120 years after the day I say so. And then that's the end. I'm going to destroy everything. But even after God pronounced judgment on man, he sent Noah, as we said, to speak to these people, to try to reach them. And the sad story is, is that men were just like men always are. They refused to repent. And when the Lord shut the door of the ark, there were only eight people on it. Four men, four women. Now, the Bible doesn't elaborate on it. But as they had gotten into the ark, can you imagine the sounds that they would have heard outside in the water as the ark began to float? People screaming for help, please let me in. Can't you do something? Can I have one more chance? There is a point where there are no more chances and none of us know where that is. So in this story we see that God's patience was tested too far. God's judgment was, was told about and came, and God provided a way by pleading with them for 120 years through Noah's preaching to return to God, but they chose not to. Noah's faith is beyond understanding almost. He, he believes a story about a storm coming that he's never seen. He builds a boat that no one has ever seen for something that most people don't even believe is going to happen. And then in faith, he preaches as energetically on the 119th day to people as he did on the first day, and not a single convert, all for over 120 years. Let's move to the next story, which is the wilderness. We want to look at Egypt, where God's chosen people are enslaved. God had decided to use a young man named Joseph to save his people. And through many trials and troubles, God moved Joseph to the place where God needed him to be. Joseph was faithful no matter what came, and God blessed him by elevating him over time to the second highest position in Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh. Um, God had sent him ahead because. He was going to need him at some point in the future. Uh, he was going to need him to do something that was very important, which was save his people. Uh, over time, the pharaohs that honored Joseph had passed away. And current leaders of Egypt grew and grew concerned because apparently the, the God's people, the Hebrews, were faster at having their children. They had children before the midwives could even get there. And they were ruddy and healthy children. God was bringing healthy children into the Jewish household. And the Egyptians were not as fast. So where I'm going with that is, is that the Hebrews grew in population far faster than the Egyptians. And the Egyptians began to be afraid and said, these have been slaves for a lot of years. See, when the Hebrews were honored while Joseph was alive, But after Joseph and that line of Pharaohs passed away, the Pharaohs began to see the Hebrews not as valued people but as free labor. And they were concerned about the fact of how many of them there were, so they made slaves out of them. And so that's the situation we're looking at here. Egypt enslaved these people to keep them under control. Out of that situation, God selected one male child, one of his people, named Moses. God protected him, and when he grew to be a man, God used him to lead his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. To accomplish this, God had sent ten terrible plagues into Egypt, using Moses to speak as his, on his behalf to Pharaoh. Because of Pharaoh's refusal to heed God's warning, Egypt was almost totally destroyed, and after the tenth plague, they were run out of town, the Hebrews were. One would think that after seeing the amazing miracles of all those plagues, the way they started immediately when God said, and cut off immediately when God said stop, that they would have understood and believed in this God, and yet they refused to do that. As soon as Moses led the people out of Pharaoh's sight, the people began to be normal people. They began to complain and wish they hadn't left. In the face of God's miracles, God's chosen people are testing God by complaining about every single move he had to make. They went three days with water on the way to a place named Marah. And the water at Marah didn't taste good. It was bitter. So they complained about it. So God heard their call and sweetened the water. The Israelites got hungry and complained. So God sent them bread from heaven they called manna. They got tired of bread. So God sent them quails until they got sick from eating them. When they got to a place named Rephidim, they complained because there wasn't any water there at all. So God brought water out of a rock and quenched their thirst. At Mount Sinai, when Moses went up the mountain to meet with God, before he could come back down, they made a golden calf and began to worship it. And the Bible says they acted out gross immorality throughout the camp. When they were just outside of the promised land, instead of going in, God said, this is your place. I have given it to you. Now just go take it. What they should have done was begin walking in that direction and go, to, go take it. What they did was they said, we're gonna, we need a meeting, a committee here. And they sent 12 spies into the land to check it out. So the 12 spies go in and check things out, and they come back, and two are faithful and 10 are not, and the 10 that are not said, we look like grasshoppers in front of giants. We can't do this. And so they said, we don't think we ought to be running in there. We're going to all get killed. And they convinced the people to believe the fear instead of the faith. Caleb and Joshua tried to get them to do the right thing, which was just go on in. So, again, God is blessed. The people have tested God to the limit nearly, and this is the situation. Because of God's unbelief, God judged them and forced them to wander in the wilderness without entering the promised land for one year for every day that the spies were in in the promised land, and that was 40, 40 years by the way, I don't know if you know how far it is from Egypt to the promised land. It's 11 days' walk. It took them 40 years. They had a man doing the directions, I can tell you that, because <clears throat> we never asked for them. This was punishment. And why did they have to stay 40 years out there? They stayed 40 years out there, as like I said, one year for every day the spies were in there, but long enough for all of the adult population to die because God said, You don't get to go in. Only your children get to go in. They chose to believe their eyes instead of having faith in God's word, and they refused God. So God judged them by having them wander in the wilderness. So again, we see God's patience was pushed and tested too far. God's judgment came. God provided them a way. All they had to do was obey and just do what he said. He was going to do the fighting for them, and they didn't, so they chose not to. So they paid the penalty. The third story is going to be in the New Testament area. I'm not sure if you've noticed the order I'm doing this, but I picked the first story from before the flood. The second story is after the flood, and the third story is in the New Testament era. God never changed through all those thousands of years. We're going to move now to a married couple that I'm sure you're familiar with their names. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. They were uh, part of the early Christian church, and this church would have been an amazing church to visit because it sounds like they truly served the Lord honestly and directly, and they had their stuff together. Acts 4.32 says, And the multitude of those that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Folks just took care of each other. They did what Jesus said. They loved each other. They loved their neighbor as themselves. People were selling land or houses or things that they had to take the money to bring and put at the disciples, now called apostles' feet. And the apostles would distribute it to the needy and make sure that nobody had too much and nobody had too little. So the community was taking care of itself, watching out for each other. That's what family's supposed to do. Apparently, best I can tell, Ananias and Sapphira got a little jealous of the praise and accolades and, boy, well, isn't that old so-and-so a great guy? He sold half of his property and gave all that money to folks that needed it. Isn't he, isn't he a great guy? Well, they wanted to hear stuff like that about themselves. We need to bear in mind that any of these decisions to sell things, to to, to bring money into the, the church, was not required, nor was it demanded, nor was it ordered. It was a personal choice. Do what God tells you to do. So apparently Ananias and Sapphira decided that what they were going to do is they were going to sell something and see if they could get some of that praise for themselves just as well. Now Ananias and Sapphira's money, motive for giving the money was flawed from the start. No question about that. The way Scripture reads, again, the primary motive was just to get told how great they were. That's never a good thing at all ever for any reason. It's a sinful thing. The problem came when they sold a piece of land but decided to give only half the money. That was fine. They could have given half the money. They didn't have to give any of it. But Peter, Apostle Peter, Uh, Ananias is the first one that comes in, and he says, Ananias, did you give all the money from the sale? Simple question, simple answer. The answer is no. But Ananias said yes. He lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck him dead immediately. And the young men came in and carried Ananias out and went out into that rocky soil somewhere, and they buried him. A little while later, Sapphira comes in, not knowing where her husband is or what's happened to him. And Peter says, Sapphira, the land that you sold and the money that you gave, was that all the money? And she said the same thing her husband did. Yes, it is. She lied to the Holy Spirit. And God struck her dead immediately. And the young men came back in and carried her. Now, I see things from a different view sometimes, but I was thinking about the poor guys that just went in and buried Ananias, dug in all those rocks, and they come back in, and another one's lying there. Really? i got to go dig another hole. But these people lied to God. How many times have we lied to the Holy Spirit, told God we'd do something, and then didn't do it? I cannot tell you how many times I've been visiting somebody in the hospital or with them through a hard time, and you hear from them, as soon as I get out of this hospital bed, I will be on the front row. All I can say is if God struck them all dead that lied to him these days, you couldn't drive down the road for the corpses because people just don't do what they tell God they're going to do. I don't know who we think we're promising things to, but we're promising things to the same God that struck these two people dead. It's a serious thing to lie to God. God's patience, again, was tested too far. God's judgment came. God provided a way. All they had to do was tell the truth. That was simple enough. One word. No, that's not all the money. Would have been fine. But they chose not to, and they paid the price. In the three stories, hopefully you see the, the connection there. No matter what age of creation you live in or where you're talking about or how far back or, how far ahead you want to consider, God will not change. It is a serious thing to push God too far. There will be a point at which you will not be able to back up. Acts chapter 5, verse 11 says, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. I guess so. People found out real quick that they weren't serving some mealy-mouthed, wimpy little god somewhere. They were serving the creator of the universe, and his word was good, and you didn't lie to to the, the, the God that created you. It's a serious thing to be called by God and to ignore it. It's a serious thing to tell him something is not true. I'm certain there was great fear. They just got what was really a dose of reality that they did not accept. Now, One of the things that I'm wondering if you're thinking is somebody might be thinking that, well, that's fine. But none of those examples really fit me or us today, do they? Really? The world is ignoring the coming of the return of Christ, just like the world ignored the coming of the flood. We still choose not to follow the direction God gives us, just like the people of God did in the wilderness. And we still have people lying to the Holy Spirit, just like they did when Ananias and Sapphira lived. Nothing has changed. We still test God's patience in all the same ways. Sinful man has not changed one iota from Adam to this day. While none of us know when Christ's return is, I can guarantee you this it's one day closer than it was yesterday. What will, what will it take? How bad a thing has to happen to us to get us to wake up and to realize what reality is and it's not what we can see and touch? We're, it's like we're in a normal life routine coma, and, and we spend all our time worrying and, and working towards things and worrying about things that are completely temporary. If you want to find something to worry about, worry about getting yourself closer to God. Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2 says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I don't know if you're picking up on the grammar here, but that's not a suggestion. As a child of God... I am expected by God to live as God wants me to live, and it's not fair or safe to compare myself with somebody, somebody else. You know, it's kind of like, remember when you were a kid and you came home and you got a C on your report card, and your parents said, you can do better than that, I do not appreciate your lack of effort, and you, well, no, Johnny got an F. Well, who cares if Johnny got an F? Your dad's talking to you. The the yardstick we measure our progress by is Jesus Christ. I flat don't measure up. In fact, I'm, I'm amazed. When I look at God calling me, I am honestly asking God many times, what were you thinking? Couldn't you have picked somebody better? We are flawed. But when we give our flawed bodies and our flawed intentions and our flawed life to a holy God, he can take it. And do something with it, because as a little boy once said, God, don't make no jump. Being obedient to God's word, I'm required to tell you that I'm calling you and myself both to holiness. Guess what? You're going to be more guilty if you don't do it after today than you were before you got here, because you've heard it again from the word of God. How exactly do we do that? The word holy actually frightens me. I'm not going to measure up. I can't find a single area of my life, my thought life, my physical life, where holy is the first thing that comes to my mind. It is just not there. It's impossible to become holy as God sees it without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But if we ask Him, He will give us the guidance and the strength to get closer to God. But you've got to be willing to start moving towards Him. He's not going to drag you off the dime you got to be willing to start. In the research that I did for this sermon, I found five things suggested that we could do to help draw ourselves closer to God in holiness. And I'd like to share them with you. To be holy, one must be connected to God who is the source of holiness. In any relationship, there is no substitute for spending time with the other person. That's magnified greatly here when you're talking about the Lord most of you or maybe not most of all of you but a huge percentage of you if you call me on the phone I don't have to ask your name I've been around you long enough I recognize your voice you want to know God's voice hang out with Jesus more you'll figure it out if we don't spend time with the Lord privately we will not recognize his voice if we don't recognize his voice we won't be able to separate it from the other false voices that we're hearing The world, Satan, our own inner self. We've got an old man, even as a Christian, that just won't lie down and die. He keeps interfering and inserting himself back into everything. You have to surrender moment by moment, not day by day or week by week. I can't make it more than a few minutes without thinking the wrong thing. I've got to have God helping me every step of the way. One fellow said, uh, someone asked him that. Did he really need, God, need the Holy Spirit to get closer to God? And he said, man, I need the Holy Spirit to get to Walmart and back. It's a true statement. We act like we're getting ready when we go to a prayer meeting to take a dose of medicine. We know it's supposed to be good, but it tastes bad. We don't really want to do that. We have the freedom and the opportunity to, to meet God, the creator of everything, the only one that can keep us safe and get us to heaven. And we drag our feet and say, there just isn't time to do everything i got a lot on my plate. Well, God will give you a bigger plate. We never seem to find time for God, but we always seem to find time to call on him when we're in trouble. I say we can always make time for the things that are important to us. You can tell what's important to anyone by looking at what's in their life. What are they focusing on? Personal story here. When Susan and I were first dating a long time ago, I could only call her. Once a night, these were the rules I had to live by. Kids, you won't believe this. I could call her at seven o'clock, Monday through Friday only, for 10 minutes. And then, I mean, I didn't hear the click, but I heard the voice that was worse than the click behind the thing say, get off the phone now. It's been there too long. You don't need to talk to that boy anymore. That didn't satisfy me as far as wanting to hang out with with Susan more, and I was. We both lived here. I lived right down the road, and Susan lived about a quarter, three quarters of a mile the other way. So I thought that thing out. I bought myself a set of walkie talkies, <laughs> and I gave her one. And I would sneak through the woods every evening, and when we finished our phone call after we finished our phone call. I would. Click it a couple times, and she would enter in the front yard with her private walkie-talk, and we'd talk as long as the batteries lasted. <laughs> if we want to do something, you're going to find a way to do it. If we genuinely love God, we will find a way to spend time with Him. To be holy, one must be separated to God as His possession. If we're saved, we're a bond slave to Christ. That means we don't have the right to live our lives however we want to. We belong to Jesus. We need to live our lives as he's called us to, as he expects us to. This includes all decisions of any importance, such as where we go to college, what discipline in college we should enroll in, what job we should take, who we should and shouldn't date or marry. Now, young people, you're not going to like my statements after this part about the dating, but very bluntly, no Christian should date a non-Christian at all. And I can almost hear somebody saying, well, I'm not gonna marry him, I'm just gonna date him, we're just having some fun. And what I would say to you about that is, I am older than you, and I have seen all through my life that your heart can very easily get attached to something that is wrong, and your mind knows better, but your heart will get attached before your mind gets in charge. Backing out of it is nearly impossible. It's like putting toothpaste back in a tube. It is very difficult to walk away from a relationship. Be careful to do it the right way. Take Christians. A uh, lady at, where I used to work asked me, said, well, will that guarantee I can find a good man? I said, no, but it sure does improve your chances. To be holy, one must be separated from the common or the ordinary. We have to be willing to strive to do everything we do as if we're doing it specifically for Jesus. If I'm cleaning the toilet, I'm cleaning Jesus' toilet. If I'm mowing the grass, I need to mow it as if he's going to be there to see what it looks like when I'm done. By the way, he already is there. You're not hiding anything. We should question ourselves every day when we look at what we've got to do and ask ourselves, if somebody follows my footprints today, will they end up at the cross? If not, change it change your footsteps to be holy one must be separated from all that god says is unclean and morally or morally defiles this is increasingly difficult they they sell everything with sex and marketing anymore A regular television isn't really regular television anymore. If you have Dish or whatever, you have to consciously and intentionally choose not to see what's on there. You have to block off what you don't want anybody to see and that you don't want to see. Get rid of the stuff in your life that is questionable. If you got rid of it, there's no temptation to pick it up again. Am I saying get rid of the TV? I'm just saying get rid of the channel that shouldn't be there tell a story real quick on Lovingston that is embarrassing. Many years ago, Lovingston's cable channel had Playboy, but it didn't have a Christian channel. And I called the manager and said, I don't get it. He said, well, we, we provide what's demanded. And I said, are you telling me that the Lovingston area cable has a higher demand for pornography than it does for God? He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's kind of a statement on society as a whole. Let me read this little quote to you. First, we overlook evil. Then we permit evil. Then we legalize evil. Then we promote evil. Then we celebrate evil. And finally, we persecute those who still call it evil. We're there right now. Isaiah 520 says, Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. To be holy, we must be obedient to God's word. There is no greater advice that I can give anybody, Christian or non-Christian. If you want to find out about God, get the book he wrote and ask him to, uh, to explain it to you while you read it. It's a good thing. It will work. People find God with no other outside influences with a Bible sometimes. I was in Bulgaria, in Sofia. And met a man whose name was Isaiah. Uh, he was, uh, was Muslim by birth. And he got curious about what Christians were all about. So he bought a Bible. and Nobody helped him. Nobody talked to him. He read the whole Bible and God saved him. He was on fire for the Lord. Put the seed out there. Remember that you're the seed. At least you're the one sowing it. God is using you as his hands and feet. As Christians, we should consider, are there any areas in our lives that we're holding out on God? I have them in mind, and I know it, and I have to give those to him. Has there been an inner tugging at your heart and emotions towards something that you simply haven't acted on? Maybe it's a call to a new profession, a ministry of some type. Maybe it's a call to visit or just talk with a friend uh, that won't go away. Go visit them. Uh, is God calling us to mend a relationship that's broken somewhere? Does it really matter who is wrong or right? That has no interest to me whatsoever. In 100 years, my parents, you said 100 years, nobody will know the difference. If there's a disagreement, fix it. If you're the one that was uh, put upon, I don't care. Fix it. If I'm part of the problem on either side, I have the responsibility to do what, what's a in my power to do to bring it back to what God wants it to be. If I need to be wrong, I'll just be wrong. I can't imagine the frustration God must feel when he sees born again again Christians trying his patience by not walking in faith. Folks, as Christians, hopefully what is sinking in is that if we continue to test God by not doing what he says and not coming coming up and towing, towing the mark, We're only in danger of losing fellowship with our Lord. In danger of losing rewards on the other side. Our our work's all being burned up when they're tried by fire. If you're a non-Christian, you need to listen. The danger is severe. Whereas a Christian falls into sin, loses fellowship. If a sinner doesn't get saved... When they die, there is a whole different result there. Basically, a non-Christian is walking a tightrope between heaven and hell, and one slip can put you in hell. If you don't know the Lord, you have no guarantee of anything from God, nothing. We saw in the flood, the wilderness, the early church, that regardless of who we are, there's a limit to how far God will, will test us. I believe that works with Christians. I believe if as a Christian I walk far enough away from the Lord, if I get so far out that I'm becoming an embarrassment to my Lord in the way I'm ministering, he will likely kill me and take me home earlier. Oh, I'll be fine. I'll go to heaven. But God's not even going to let a genuine Christian stay here and cause people to hate Christ We have to realize how we're living, even as a Christian. You have to take responsibility for yourself. It's nobody else's fault. I don't care what anybody did to you. And there's a point at which your mind changes and your heart becomes responsible for your own self. And you have to answer to Christ. And he's only going to want to ask one question. Did you you accept me or not? There's going to be a lot of people that were in church a whole lot that here uh, depart from me. I never knew you. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, myself. The question of the morning is very simple. Christian or non-Christian? With the things that God's calling you to do, will you be too late in doing them? Can't answer that for you. You can keep putting it off, and who knows? You might luck out, or God's grace But even if you luck out by God's grace and you're not taken home before you can make a decision, look at the fellowship with God and the blessings that you've missed in the interim. I I love what Jerry Falwell used to say. He said, if it wasn't a heaven to gain or a hell to lose, I'd still want to walk the Christian life. It's the best way to live. I agree with that. The one thing I know is whatever your needs are, Jesus is the only way to peace regardless of the situation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the people that are here today. Thank you, Father, for using me in a faulty way, Lord, to speak through. But I ask that what I have said would not be me, that it would be what you are saying to individual hearts, Father. That as we have the hymn of invitation, and Nathan or I are down at the front, that if anybody wants to pray at the altar, they will. If they want to speak to a pastor, they can do that. But, Father, whatever they need to change, lead them to do that and give them the courage to to choose you and not the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we move into this time of invitation, we ask you to stand and we will be singing a little chorus. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.